So I do want to preach a New Year's message, uh, in a sense, this morning. Um, and it might have a, um, a strange title for a New Year's message, but please bear with me and you'll see where I'm going. It's simply what Jesus said. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And we're going to have a look at what that means this morning. And I have to say that I look back on 2013 with absolute thankfulness in my heart. Um, it was a very difficult year for our family. But it was also a brilliant year for our family. And isn't it amazing that as Christians we can say those two things in the same sentence and mean them equally? <laughs> it was a difficult year, but it was a brilliant year. And uh, I want to testify to what God taught us this last year. We've seen His faithfulness displayed in our lives in the most obvious way. We experienced His love and His grace to us as a family in the most obvious of ways. We experienced His kindness, His provision, His faithfulness, His mercy, His healing. And we are so grateful. We really are so grateful. Uh, but I also want to say that it was a year that we experienced God's love practically in acts of kindness and friendship shown to us by our friends, our family, and members of this church community. And I do want to make much of that as well. We've experienced many meals, many phone calls, texts, uh, and at times when we needed it most, phone calls, they were key. That just helped us through the last year. And above all, the certain knowledge that people that loved us and cared for us were praying for us. That was more meaningful than anything else. Now, there are some that are so spiritual that they say we cannot speak of men. We cannot celebrate the kindness of others. All we must do is elevate Jesus. None must take the place of Jesus. I agree that none must take the place of Jesus. But on closer inspection, that sentiment, which seems to be spiritual and noble, on closer examination, it proves not to be so. In fact, quite the opposite. Because those that love us, those that feed us, those, the hands that care for us and bind up our wounds are the hands of friends and family and church community that practically live out and demonstrate the kingdom of heaven, which is in heaven, on earth. Through the way they live their lives with compassion and other-centeredness and a lack of selfishness. That is to be celebrated. And so I want to just say... Jesus said, if you've done this for the least of them, you've done it for me. And I want to say thank you from our hearts as a family for all of you that have stood with us um, this last year. And I also want to say there are many, many other testimonies of how you've stood with each other. <laughs> and that's a brilliant thing. That's what church is about. That's what community is about. We stand together. We celebrate victories together. We weep together. And we, we encourage each other. This is the life of Christ. This is the body of Christ. And so I want to look back on 2013 with joy, thankfulness, and I want to celebrate all that it held. But I want to look forward uh, to 2014, obviously because it's the beginning of the year, and I want to ask you a question as we start, as we start looking forward to the year. What is the basis for your confidence for 2014? What is the basis for your confidence? Um, are you looking forward to the year or aren't you? Well, I certainly hope we're starting with, with optimism, all right? I hope we all are starting full of optimism and we look ahead to the year. Uh, are you anticipating God's blessing this year? Well, I hope you are. <laughs> I hope you're looking towards God and towards His blessing in whatever way it comes. 
I've learned this over the last years. Sometimes we only look for God's blessing in certain ways. And when we, have, we see those ways in our lives, then we say we are being blessed. But I've found more and more that sometimes God's blessing comes to us in ways that we least expect and we're not looking for. It's still His blessing. So I trust that your confidence for this year won't just be built on whether you can see His obvious blessing in your life or not. Are you perhaps a little nervous about the year? Oh, I hope not. <laughs> I, I trust that you will choose to become someone who sees the glass half full and not the glass half empty. God has blessed us all with so much, and we want to celebrate that and enjoy that, but also our confidence can't just be based on that. Uh, are you perhaps here this morning and you are hoping that this year might finally be the year that you meet Mr. Wright, ladies, or Mrs. Wright, gentlemen. Uh, Miss Wright, yes, sorry. You know. <laughs> that, pers- that person who will, obviously, who will love you and meet all your needs and your desires. Uh, well, if you are in that position, I trust that it will be the year that it happens. But don't let that be the confidence with which you approach the year. Right? I read something this week that um, Madonna is 55, and she's dating someone who's 22. And um, who was the other one? Tina Turner is 60-odd, and she's dating someone in her 30s. And so the little quip at the end of this quote from the person who put it up on the Internet was, so ladies, if you're still waiting for your man of your dreams, don't worry, he hasn't been born yet. <laughs> It's like the world is a little bit weird, isn't it? Oh, dear. Perhaps you're hopeful that this will finally be the year that your business breaks through and your ship comes in. Well, I want to say um, the economy is looking much better. The predictions are that the stock market is going to do well this year. Unemployment is down. Consumer confidence is up. And these are all good things. But surely recent history has told us that stock markets rise and stock markets fall. And so let's not place our confidence in that. And maybe, like all of us, we have resolutions. We set ourselves goals, simple things, simple um, things we'd like to achieve in the year. And these are good. Goals are good. They bring focus. They bring motivation. I think they are brilliant, necessary, and key things. We can't put our confidence in our achieving of our goals because sometimes we don't achieve what we set out to achieve. And again, I've enjoyed some of the things that people have put up on Twitter and um, all of these uh, various social media things this last week. In particular, I enjoyed Mike Pilavachi. always makes me laugh. And um, his little prayer this year was, Lord, my prayer for 2014 is for a thin body and a fat bank account. Please don't mix these requests up like you did last year. Uh, yeah. And I've heard various derivations of that as well. But anyway. But I want to just say, as we look, to, look towards the year, that for, for me, all of those things have a wrong starting point, essentially, because they all, they all start with me. They all start with what I would like to achieve, what is good for my life, blessing for my life, uh, ministry for me, whatever it might be. And so I'd just like us to pause and look at perhaps start at a different place this morning. Maybe we can start by not saying, God, this is what I want you to do for me, 
this year, maybe the place to start is, God, what would you have of me this year? And I, I really do want to encourage you to listen to Kurbis's message from last week, which I found in particularly encouraging personally. And um, if you, uh, I, I trust this message kind of will follow on a little bit from what he preached. And I love Micah 6 verse 8, if you know that scripture well. It simply says this, What does the Lord require of me but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with my God? That's what Micah 6, 8 says. To love justice. In other words, not only to love it cerebrally, but to behave in a way that is just. To love mercy. Not just to say that we love mercy, but to be merciful to others and to walk humbly with our God. And so I want to really speak about those things this morning. I want to speak about humility. I want to speak about Jesus put in another way. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that's the title of what I'd like to speak to you about this morning. And the truth is that we all make promises to ourselves to mark the beginning of a new year. We make pledges. We say things like, I'm going to save more. I'm going to exercise more. I'm going to spend less time on the internet. I'm going to spend less time in front of the television. And we begin with the best of intentions. But before long, old habits push in and they tempt us to take up our old ways. And the pattern of our lives slips back to what it was. And things that were occasionally true become more frequently true. And finally, a couple of months into the year, it's like we never made any resolutions anyway. And so we come back at the beginning of the next year with the best intentions. And so I want to say to you that instead of choosing self-improvement goals this year, because those are essentially what they are, self-improvement goals, can we not start together as a church community and just ask the simple question, what does God require of me this year? God, what do you require of me? And he says in Micah there, to love what is right, to love mercy, to be merciful. And that's not about self-improvement. That's about soul improvement. It's not talking about outside stuff. It's talking about inside stuff. And we believe that the gospel is an inner transformational message that changes us from the inside out. And we preach in this church that when you are changed on the inside, you will live differently on the outside. But what has to change is the, in, is the inner man needs to change. The inner man with his selfishness and his, and his uh, desire for more and uh, all those things, that's what needs to change because when the inner man changes, the outer man automatically changes alongside. And so much of our world tries to change outward behavior without addressing the heart. And the brilliant part of the gospel is that it testifies to what Jesus has already done on our behalf. <laughs> and because of what Jesus has done, we don't have to try hard. The Scripture simply says that the Holy Spirit inside of us automatically transforms us from one degree of glory to another, and we become more like Jesus as we keep our eyes on Him. <laughs> That's all we have to do, is to look to Jesus for everything. And as we look to Jesus for everything, everything else falls in line in our lives. And He changes us. He changes our motives. He changes our desires. He changes what we value. And we start to see things from His perspective and not our own. And so I want to try and encourage you this morning, out of the joy of the gospel, and out of the freedom that we have in Christ, 
that we are saved by grace. It's got nothing to do with us. It's got everything to do with Him. Apart from works, this is what Romans says, we are justified freely by grace. We don't work at it. And that's a joyful thing in our lives. It's not a heavy thing. As we joyfully just let God transform us and we walk by the Spirit, He brings all things into line. And He gives us the desires of our hearts anyway. And so I want to encourage you that if we're going to resolve anything this year, let it just simply be that we want to become more like Jesus. <laughs> more like Jesus. And as we walk humbly by the Spirit, we will become more like Him. And I said in my introduction that this really is what Jesus taught. Micah said it in those particular words. And Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, He used these words to say the same thing. He simply said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will see the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about humility. He carries on and he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's just another way of saying what Micah already said in the Old Testament. And so I want to encourage you this year that we enjoy the freedom that we have in Christ, that we live with joy, that we live full of life, but at the same time, we walk humbly before our God, and we know what it means to be poor in spirit. And I, I believe those are not exclu- they don't contradict each other, those things. We can live joyfully, full of grace, full of the, the freedom that we have in Jesus, and we can walk humbly at the same time. And I want to say that is the key for life. It's not just the key for 2014. I want to know God's blessing. I don't know about you. How many of you want to know God's blessing? Well, here we have in a nutshell, Jesus says, if you want to be blessed, learn what it is to be poor in spirit, and you will be blessed. Blessed are, happy are those that are poor in the spirit. Are poor in spirit. And so I'm not talking, I just want to say again, in case I'm misunderstood, I'm not talking about a morbid introspection, just weighing on the fact that I'm sinful and I need a Savior. I believe the gospel has set us free and we are new creations. I understand that. But at the same time, I am talking about humility. Are you with me? That we don't become more puffed up and rely on ourselves and what we can do, that at all things we're looking to Christ. And so I'd like to start, uh, and you might say, geez, was that his introduction? I, no, I'm quite, quite far in, all right? But I'd like to kind of start my logic, if you, if you, if you want to put it like that, with something that Tim uh, used a couple of weeks ago when I heard him preach on grace, and he talked about Christianity as being a crutch. That's a common question that people have, a common objection that people raise they say, isn't Christianity a crutch for people who can't make it on their own? And my simple answer is, yes, absolutely. And I'd like to try and explain what I mean as we look at humility. I want to ask you a question. What is bad about a crutch? What is bad about a crutch? I was reading uh, John Piper this week, and he said this, why is the thought that Christianity is a crutch considered to be a valid criticism of Christianity? People don't usually look at a crutch and say, that's a bad thing. It's just a crutch. People don't in general think that crutches are bad things. Why does a crutch become a bad thing when it's Christianity? I think the answer is that most critics would give this. The, the, most, the answer that most critics would give is this. If Christianity is a crutch, 
then it's only, for, only good for cripples. And we don't like to see ourselves as cripples. It's offensive to our self-sufficiency to, to label Christianity as, as a crutch. That is the key. I want to point you back to Mark chapter 2, which we looked at a couple of months ago, where Jesus said this, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick need a doctor. I did not come to call the righteous, but I came for sinners. Mark 2.17. In other words, and I've said this before, I want to say it again, the only people who ever will come to get what Jesus has to offer are sick people. People who know that they are spiritually and morally and often physically crippled and they need help and they cannot do it themselves. And so I want to remind you again of this, that everybody has a gospel. Everybody has a gospel. Everybody has a creed. Every, all people have a belief system, a system of thinking around which they shape their lives, whether they do it intentionally or not. Even agnostics believe very strongly that you ought not to believe in anything very strongly. That is why it's very difficult to be a convincing agnostic. Because you can't believe anything strongly and you can't say to others that they need to believe things strongly and you can't believe anything strongly in yourself. It's a very difficult position to maintain. But we all have a creed by which we live, whether we can articulate it or not. And that's why I want to ask this question. What is the worldview? What is the, what is the creed, the conviction behind this thought that if Christianity is a crutch, it's undesirable, it's unworthy of acceptance? And the answer simply is this. It's the confidence that we are not cripples. It's the confidence that we can do it ourselves. It's the confidence that real joy and fulfillment in life are to be found in pursuing self-determination, self-confidence, self-esteem, being masters of our own destiny. That's why it offends us. And so Jesus, the Messiah, those that believe Jesus is the Messiah, he comes along and he proposes not a reliance on yourself, but a childlike reliance on God. Not a confidence in yourself, but a submissive God confidence that He is sufficient, that He is sovereign, that He is wise, and I'm not. Instead of self-determination, replacing that with a belief in His sovereign grace over our lives. And you see, any Messiah who comes and preaches that and lives that out is going to be a threat to a religion of self-admiration, a religion of, I can do it on my own. And that really, my friends is um, the, the, the religion, the thought process that has dominated the world ever since Adam and Eve fell in love with the image of their own independent potential that they saw reflected back to them in the eyes of the serpent. Ever since that day, the world has been full of itself and still is full of itself and says, I don't need anything from anyone else, let alone God. I can do it all on my own. I read this week an essay by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Some of you might know he was an American poet, American philosopher. He died about 120 years ago. 
And he wrote an essay called, a famous essay called Self-Reliance. And it captures the spirit of what I'm trying to talk about. It's the spirit of the age in which we live. It's, he simply said this, trust yourself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. Trust yourself. And then he says this, discontent is a want of self-reliance. It is the sickness of our wills. The sickness of our wills is that we don't depend on ourselves enough. That's what Emerson says. And now we begin to see what the criticism is of what I'm talking about. The real disease, Emerson says, the real disease in this world is a lack of self-confidence. That's what he's saying. And so to his dismay, along comes this preacher, Jesus, and he doesn't even try and cure the disease. He offers a crutch. He says, I can help you. And it becomes a stumbling block to many. It becomes an offense to many. It becomes a stench. That's why Paul says, we are the fragrance of Christ to those who are being saved, and we are the stench of death to those that are dying. That's exactly what he's trying to say. When you don't get it, when you don't get it that you need help, when you say, I can do it all on my own, Christianity is a stench of death. It's an offense because it says there is one that has done all that we need for life and godliness. And all we have to do is depend on him. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the gospel. And so that's what Jesus says. He comes and he takes this, this feeling of helplessness, this feeling that we can't do it ourselves, and he doesn't, doesn't offer anything else except that he says that feeling, that thing that you can't do it yourself, that is actually the doorway to heaven. That's the doorway to eternal life, and that's what people find so offensive. It's, that's why it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for, those, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Can I get some water, please? Or else I'm going to be here a long time. I'm just teasing. I just would like to point you then, in, in terms of this thing of humility and living with a, a sense of knowing what it means to be poor in spirit, I'd like to look at some great characters from the Bible just to um, try and help us understand a little bit more of what the Scripture says. What about Abraham, the father of our faith, the one that we look to as Christians as the first Christian, really, before the law? Abraham. He says this when he's talking to the Lord about Sodom and Gomorrah and God, and God destroying the cities. He says, Behold, I have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. Genesis 18.27 I who am but dust and ashes. He had, a, he had an understanding of what it means to be not dependent on yourself and to see yourself as you should. What about Jacob when he returns? Thank you. He, he returned to the promised land um, after spending 20 years in exile. He wrestles with God in prayer and he says, I am not worthy of the least of all your steadfast love and all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my only staff I crossed the Jordan and now I have become two companies. He's got the sense of God is working on his behalf. It's not him. What about Moses? When God comes to him with a mission to lead his people out of Israel, he says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent... Uh, I cannot speak. Since you have spoken to your servant, I'm slow of speech and I'm slow of tongue. Exodus 3.11. And the reason that God gets angry with Moses is not because of his humble assessment of himself. He gets angry with Moses because of Moses' lack of faith in God's ability. That's what he gets angry with. 
He says, God responds and turns to him and says, Who made man? Who made your mouth? Who makes him dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I? Now therefore go. And I'll teach you what you should speak. Exodus 4.11. You see, the answer to feeling a low sense of self-esteem and feeling paralyzed by lack of confidence, the biblical answer is not to big yourself up. The Bible never does that. The Bible does not try and say to Moses, hey, Moses, actually, don't put yourself down. You actually are a really good speaker. You're a great guy. You're eloquent. You're the man that we need. God doesn't say that to, to Moses. What does he say? He just says, take your eyes off your own unworthiness and what you are not and put your eyes on me and who I am and what I can do. That's what the Bible always does. I want to encourage you this morning, if you feel unworthy, if you feel nervous, if you feel like you don't know what the, the, the year holds for you, take your eyes off yourself this morning and look to the great King of the universe who is able to do all things and put your confidence and your trust in Him. That's what I'm asking you to do. And I could finish now, I suppose, because I've said what I wanted to say. <laughs> I will help you, says the Lord. And he would say to us, he has a little test for all of us, whether you really do believe that. Can you gladly say this? Repeat the words of Isaiah 41.13. Can I gladly say this? This is what Isaiah says. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. Oh, no, I don't like to hear that. I'm, I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm not a worm. I'm... I have all that I need for life and God. Yeah, yeah, that's true. What does Isaiah say? Fear not, O worm, Jacob. Why? If you just read the conclusion of the sentence, it says, I will help you, says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. That's the, that's the key part. It's not the worm part. It's the I will help you part, even whether you feel like a worm or not. When, I, when we, our kids were growing up, we loved Bugs Life. Have you seen that movie? There's a delightful, delightful character whose name I forget. The big fat caterpillar with a German accent. What's his name? And he has these tiny little wings on his body. And he keeps the whole movie saying, I'm turning into a beautiful butterfly. I'm turning into a beautiful butterfly. That's his whole thing. He wants to be this beautiful butterfly. Well, in God's economy, he doesn't, he's not too concerned convincing people that are caterpillars that they are need to become beautiful butterflies. He's not too concerned about that. What he wants to get into our heads is simply this, that whether we are fat caterpillars or whatever we are, his word to us is, I will help you. And so I want to encourage you at the beginning of this year, whatever the year holds, when we look back at the end of the year, and it's been a whole adventure, and we've gone on these things, let this be the cry of our hearts that God has helped us, that we have kept our eyes on Him and He has taken us through whatever life holds for us this year. And I'd like to kind of finish with um, just a wonderful testimony that I read this week in my own devotions of William Carey. Um, you know, William Carey was an English Baptist uh, missionary and he uh, was known as the father of modern missions. Basically, he was the founder of the, of the Baptist Missionary Society. Spent much of his time in India, where he labored for many, many years, um, 
And it was characteristic of Kerry that he actually didn't think much of himself. In fact, the opposite was true. He kind of castigated himself again and again for his sins, which I think was probably an unhealthy thing. I read this week that when a fire in 1812 destroyed most of his manuscripts that he'd been working on, he didn't blame the devil, he didn't get angry. He just said, how unsearchable are God's ways? <laughs> and then he went on to say, perhaps I had made too much of my self-congratulation on my labors, and perhaps the Lord was just trying to correct me. He outlived three wives. He saw children die. He wrote back to Andrew Fuller, who was one of his partners in, a, in, in the work that he was doing, and he said, I don't know why God has allowed so fruitless a tree to be preserved, but the Lord is too wise to make mistakes. That's how, that's how he saw himself. And so when he, when he died in Serampore in, in India, he requested that these words be put on his grave. William Carey, born August 17, 1761, died June 9, 1834, a wretched, poor, helpless worm. That's his epitaph that he chose for himself. If he had stopped there, I would have said, no, but you are too hard on yourself. You haven't understood the gospel. What did he go on to say? And he didn't finish there. He finished with this little line. Into your arms I fall. Into the kind arms of Jesus. He was a man who understood what it is to be poor for it. I want to encourage you this morning... Whatever you feel about yourself, whatever you feel you lack, will you throw yourself onto the kind arms of Jesus today? That's what he asks of you. That's all he calls you to do, is throw yourself completely onto him. Carry knew this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for to them belongs the kingdom of God. And so I want to finish with a couple more examples, and then we're going to pray and break bread together. If you, if you do a, a, a search of the Scripture, any great person in the Scripture understood this. And so my prayer for this year is that as we go forward as a church community, is that all of us will find that the secret of productivity, usefulness, and happiness is not in trying to make a whole lot of resolutions and making more of ourselves and bigging ourselves up and saying we can do it and we're the masters of our own destiny and, and we're going to make this year better than last year. But we throw ourselves onto his mercy and his sovereign grace in our lives. That we live at peace with that. In the words of Isaiah, fear not, you worm. (laughs) I'm going to help you. What did David say? David said, the sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a contrite heart. O God, you do not despise these things. Psalm 51. Now, all of us would agree if you've been caught in adultery and you've murdered someone like David did, that there was pro- probably a good posture to adopt. But what about the times when you're doing good, when you're doing good things? Well, David had the same attitude even when he was doing good things. The collection of the temple was being taken up. David prays, who am I and what is my people that we should thus be able to offer this willingly? For all things come from you and of you we have, um, and of our own we have given you anyway. 
In other words, even when David was doing good stuff, when he was, he was offering up good deeds out of a, a life that was overflowing with thankfulness, he didn't look to himself, he didn't look to his own self-importance, he was carried upon the sovereign grace of God in his life, and he said, God, it's all about you anyway. You enable me to do this anyway, and the glory goes to you. I could talk about Solomon, Job, Isaiah. I want to skip that for the sake of time. But let's look at John the Baptizer. What did John the Baptizer say? He said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know who comes after me, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He must increase, and I must decrease. I want to suggest to you this morning, that's why Jesus could say this of John, amongst those born of women, no one is greater than John. Luke 7, 28. Mark 9, 34. If anyone must be, would like to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. I love the story of the tax collector. What about the story of the tax collector? Jesus tells this parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector who went up to the temple to pray. And the tax collector of the tax collector, he says, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And what does Jesus say? This man went down to his house justified, saved. Just another way of saying, blessed are the poor in spirits. What about the centurion? It says when Jesus was far from, not far from his house, the centurion sent some friends to him and his daughter is sick and he says, Lord, do not trouble yourself. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof and I would not presume to come to you, but say your word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus says, he marvels at him and turns to the multitude and he says, I tell you, not ever in Israel have I ever found such faith. And there's the Canaanite woman, there's Peter, there's Paul. I know that nothing good dwells in me, in my flesh, says Paul. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave me the growth. Neither anyone who plants or anyone who waters is anything, but only God gives growth. 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Timothy 1. I am the foremost of sinners, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example for those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So what's the best way to start this year? And I am finishing. What's the best way to start this year? The best way for us to all start this year is to have this resounding in our hearts and beating in our minds. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will see the kingdom of heaven. It means that we don't have a sense of power in ourselves. It means that we know that apart from Christ, we are spiritually bankrupt, we are hopeless before God. But we, it means that we know that there's a moral uncleanness in us apart from Christ. It means that we go with a sense of humility into our future, knowing that we completely depend on the grace of God. It's a sense that if there's joy in life, if there's usefulness in life, it all starts with God, it all depends on the grace of God, and there's nothing about ourselves that gets in the way. That's what it means. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit? And I don't believe that he means everybody. It doesn't mean everybody. 
He means those that know that they are poor in spirit. He means those that can feel and sense that they are poor in spirit. And that's why it's so appropriate to take those verses together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will see the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Because it clarifies what Jesus is saying in the first sentence. Blessed are those that feel keenly their sense of inadequacy. That know that they are guilty. That know that they have failed. And that they are helpless. But who don't try and hide those things under a cloak of self-confidence and digging themselves up. And, you know, often the, the, the people that are the most arrogant are, are often the most insecure. Wow, because I can show I can do it all myself. What I want to tell you guys, I can't do it all myself. I've given up long ago. Jesus can do much. In me, through me, with all of my lack of skill in many areas in my life. Why? Jesus pulls his church, not me. I can do what I can do. You can do what he can do, what you can do. And together we find the mind of Christ. But he pulls his church. And he uses us, certainly. But he builds his church. And so my prayer for this year, for all of us, is that we would find and be driven constantly back to the grace of God and to the kindness and the mercy of God. That you would find grace for your life, for, for this year, whatever it holds. There's only one source of confidence. That's the only source of confidence that we can have. Let us all know the grace of God. Let us know what it means to walk humbly. Let us know what it means to love mercy, love justice, and to live for others this year. And we will look back at the end of this year grateful, thankful, and full of hope for the year that lies still further ahead of us. God bless you. Blessed are the poor in spirits, for they will see the kingdom of heaven.